how would you like to be introduced for the show? I mean, do you want to be a do you want to be a writer or a historian or what do you think? Uh, I I don't consider myself any of those things. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what the term to use is because it's like I've been doing this for so long, and it's kind of like I don't know what the right non-pretentious title for anything is actually you know that's always like any of the talks i get that's the first thing i say is like i am not an expert on anything but getting myself in trouble hi i'm ethan i love muzzleloading today we're talking with nathan kobuck we're going to be talking about nathan's history in muzzleloading what he enjoys about it as well as his passion for 18th century market hunters operating out of fort pitt my name's nathan kobuck because i've been involved in muzzleloading in some way or another oh about i guess i hate to say it, it's like 30 35 years now. <laughs> That's a good amount of time. Yeah, it's, it makes me feel really old when I say that out loud. <laughs> um, I uh, I grew up um, in a pretty rural area, and my uh, my father and grandfather were very, very avid hunters and outdoorsmen. And um, so along with the usual, you know, uh, you know, running around with a BB gun and, you know, learning how to fish and everything, I just kind of at some point became obsessed with history. Hmm. Um, that was my, my go-to. And a result of that, um, you know, my dad muzzleloader hunted at that point. And so I fixated on that. And then from the stuff I was reading, you know, because I was, I was reading narratives um, when I should have been, you know, doing schoolwork. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so then my grandfather was really, it was a very good trapper. He started teaching me how to trap. So those things, along with the history just kind of all blended themselves in together where it got, you know, really frustrating for my parents because if I would, you know, not do good in school, they'd send me, you know, they ground me to my room and it's like, great, that's where all my books are at. You know, <laughs> it's kind of where you so, wanted to be then. Yeah. Is it? So it was either, um, after I started reenacting when I was around 12, 13, um, you know, got my first uh, Dixie mountain rifle, and and just you know and the the super non helicopter parents that we had in the uh, 80s and 90s just turned me loose in the woods with a muzzleloader, and um you know that was that was pretty much it you know that after sounds that, awesome. it was all, yeah I mean it was after that it was all um, punk rock music history and horror movies for me you know and that's that just kind of kept me going through college um yeah and that's pretty much it it's just I. But pretty quickly, the one thing I discovered was that um, I'd be reading Alan Eckert books, but then I would go to the the bibliographies that he had and then track down those books, you know, where he where he he'd found things from, you know, okay, fictional story, and then uh, you know, interlibrary loan that that book, read the real stuff, um, and then just keep going from there, you know, just because all there was so much just cool details and stories and all these narratives that were just way better than anything I was, any fiction I was reading or anything, any of the, uh, you know, movies or TVs that were out there. Yeah. That's what I'm finding as I try to dip my toe into kind of researching some of this stuff on my own is I'm, I'm finding the the stuff that is informing or inspiring, you know, the, the contemporary stories that have been told and they're just so good. Like, I understand why we've we've begun to tell more in, in different kinds of stories, but there's so much stuff that actually happened to people. It is recorded. It's there's too much of it to to consume in one lifetime. I feel like. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, it just never ends. I mean, um, you know, like if 
uh, John Turner, who he his narrative. I, I know uh, Bill Snyder mentioned on the Long Hunter mm-hmm. thing. Like John Turner's narrative, I, I don't know why that has never been made into a movie. I mean, it has everything you need, you know. I mean, and it is just such a compelling story. Um, and it's so many little details in there that really show how people's lives they live their lives. That it's like you know, but it just gets glossed over. I yeah. mean, you know, um, you know, and this no, it's in this hobby like people hit the, uh, you know, the main, you know, the Doddridge. Um, they might read J.D. Smythe, and then other than that, it's all just hearsay and uh, my buddy told me information right and there's so much good and good stuff out there to to, to find that i mean it's like that's been I've, since day one that i've been on the internet doing any of this stuff i've always been like you know hey uh there's there's all these cool books that you could be reading instead of arguing about bullet boards or <laughs> you know i mean you know it's just all this kind of stuff that you can do instead of being arguing about just politics on facebook you know there's so much information out there yeah but it's just this should be this could occupy your time yeah and it's it's a a, a use of your time and an, an input into your brain that i think does something for you rather than the the easy dopamine you know scrolling through social media or, or arguing with somebody i guess if you're the kind of right. person that gets dopamine from that but you're you, there's so much to learn, and I think that can inform you know how we live our lives today. Granted, we're not going through the same things as as folks in the 18th century were, but um, boy, it's just I think it has a great impact on people. Yeah, I mean, and it's like I'm still you know like I'll still I'll reread a lot of these books like uh, James Smith Skua, for example. I reread that at least once a year. Okay, and I'm I'm still you know every time I read it, you know I end up you know chasing my wife down to tell her some dumb quote I found, <laughs> and, you know, cause that's, I guess you know, you're following the dopamine, you know, you're yeah. like, look at this. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, honey. You know? Yeah. But good for you. So much, yeah. There's so much of that stuff out there that it's like, I, I'm really surprised sometimes whenever I keep seeing the same questions pop up decade after decade now on things where it's like, you know, where's this or what, you know, what kind of moccasins should I wear? What about hunting shirts? You know, this and that. And that's a lot of that's kind of why I started doing my blog, I guess, 10 years ago now is to, to just put stuff in a consumable, bizarre spot in the internet that people could be like, hey, you know, here's some basic information and, you know, where to find the sources for it. Right. I you think know. from what I can tell, at least, and, and maybe you see something different, but the folks asking, you know, what was kind of be, can be seen as those those basic, simple questions. They don't necessarily know where to go looking. And so they're they're relying on peers to, to answer that question kind of, you know, when they want it answered. But they're not necessarily taking the time to go out and try to find that primary source information on, on their own. And maybe they're concerned about finding the wrong information. But it's I think it, in a lot of ways, it's better to try to go out and find it and maybe find the wrong information than continue to perpetuate maybe incorrect or, or not necessarily. And there's one thing about, you know, going out and and hunting and camping and having a good time. But I think there's another, another thing when you go into trying to recreate and portray history accurately, you know? Yeah. And there's, it's like, that's one thing, fine line I've always tried to walk because a lot of the, 
when I started doing this stuff, um, the gentleman who really, really helped push me into doing stuff on my own, um, his name is Pete Dobbs. He did a lot of like the really followed the, the Mark Baker articles and everything back in the nineties. Mm-hmm. But Pete also had gone to a lot of rendezvous and learned a lot of skills there. So I ended up doing some of that stuff. And from going to like a, you know, a rendezvous versus a, a juried event, you know, it's two totally different mindsets. Yeah. But my thing has always been to everybody. I'm like, you're going to learn stuff at each one of these places, you know, and you're, it's going to be just the hobby as a whole. I mean, you're always going to be, you're going to find people at each one who are a little um, standoffish, but majority of the time you're going to walk into that and you're not going to leave without having learned something or a skill from somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean, going to uh, the Lancaster rendezvous back in the 90s, watching guys making, you know, fire with flint and steel in like seconds is still impressive to me, you know, (laughs) decades later. Or I've done events with guys who look like they stepped out of a Morier painting. You know, everything was impeccable, but they had no camp craft knowledge. You know, they they couldn't boil uh, eggs. You know, it was... (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, there's a place, I think, for both of them. And, and like, that's where I think like, this, the, I hate using the word, but trekking kind of thing kind of can blend the two where you can use skills that you learn, you know, actually get out there and do this stuff. But the, the material culture part also really plays into it. Yeah. If you want to really get out there and try it right. But, I mean, I'd rather have a guy out there in Cheetos orange, um, buckskins, that's willing to do, do this stuff than a guy who... You know, it looks like you stepped out of a painting that just is going to cry and whine because you're getting rained on the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I was reading um, your article, Knapsacks and No Flower. I'm going through and, and trying to put it together one of my own knapsacks here um, as we head into kind of summer. And the information that you're citing there about the, the stages of these uh, these ventures, I, I like you, like you said, I don't necessarily want to call them treks because these are original sources and and original notes taken on these expeditions and things. But those stages are were really eye opening to me because now we we kind of go camping with with coolers and they've you know you can generally get to what you need you know in the next town over or something. You drive a little bit, but uh, the stages that you're talking about where you're going from. You know, plenty of food to no food to destitute was just really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, Cresswell, uh, I say it now, one is one yes. of my favorite because he, you know, that first day, him and uh, John Anderson, who's a um, an Indian trader out of Fort Pitt, the first morning they stopped the camp, he specifically mentions that they have, you know, bacon hams, two bottles of rum, you know, bread. Like they have a lot of food, but the problem is they immediately, how do you say, they do a toast basically to their journey. Then they do a second toast. And then next thing you know, these guys are drunk and they wander away drunk from all their food. <laughs> you know? So now, you know, a couple of weeks later, you know, they're, you know, all they have is a cornmeal with worms in it, you know? And it's like, you watch, you know, you, you go from that first, when it, you get out of the truck and you're walking in the woods and you and your buddies are pumped to when that first rainstorm hits. And like, then you realize that, you know, the, everything that you have has been soaked wet you know, the coffee is now mixed in with the rice and you're just going to have a terrible weekend. And it's like, it's right out of the books. And it's, yeah. I mean, you know, being miserable and hungry, you can't get any more historic than that, you know? So what, what took you from hunting with your father and grandfather to going out and 
sitting in the rain and going through, you know, <laughs> coffee and rice mixed in. <laughs> what led you um, to want I, to do that or, or enjoy doing that, I should say? Um, I guess the, the well, one, Boy Scouts as a kid. Okay. You know, I was very active in Boy Scouts. So, you know, the, the key to Boy Scouts is as a kid, you know, you're, especially at that point, because it's, let's say the 80s, every kid had, everything they owned was Army Surplus. Mm-hmm. And just bought because it looked cool. And, you know, you came out and you just, we were always getting rained on. We were always getting, you know, <laughs> stung by bees, sunburnt things, but it was always fun. Yeah. And then I would go home as a kid and, you know, we'd try to do this stuff. I'd, I'd read, um, you know, Mark's articles and I'd read narratives and things and I'd try to go do the same thing. And it, I, I guess it's, I don't know if it's, you know, some something wrong with my brain that this always remained fun to me, but it was just something that it's like it. The, the, then it became more educational in a way because it's like now I could really go talk to people about you know what it's like you know to wear moccasins that are worn out and have no food. You know you can really the the honesty in your voice and your um, the way you present the information, it really comes through to the public a okay. lot more than just standing there in a sterile environment being like, yes. And then it was really hard for them to walk, you know? Right. So you're, you're kind of using your own experiences going through similar things that the information that you're citing those people went through. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and it's, I guess, and I, I lucked out, uh, I've been insanely lucky through this whole you know process of my life where I, able to make friends with amazing people at different stages that you know were into that same things um like the group that i uh um would do reenactments with the augusta county militia you know we're all all most of us roughly the same age same backgrounds and you know we all grew up thinking this stuff was fun Mm -hmm. you know so then as you know as adults we were going out and doing the exact same stuff and it all became that became more of like a it was a peer pressure thing in a way between each of us it was like, well, you know, we, we, we did four days. Let's now let's do like nine days. You know, let's, let's push the envelope a little further. Yeah. Um, and it just always, and it, having that group of friends who, you know, you can sit there in a rainstorm, um, getting drenched, laughing about it, you know, makes things like that so much easier because it's, you know, if you can keep your, you know, your morale up, you know, you can really get through anything where, you know, like my problem right now is doing a lot of trekking, hiking on my own. Is like, I get tired of hearing my own stories from me when I'm in the woods and it gets, you know, old, real old, real fast. Whenever you're sitting in the rain. Right. You kind of know what you're trying to do to yourself <laughs> to get through it. And <laughs> right. Huh. So what then kind of going through your, your timeline here, you, hunting kind of into the trekking and, and the recreation of the equipment and the experiences what then led you to become uh, a publisher so to speak of, of this information where you were experiencing it that then and sharing the information that you found on it because i think there, it's one thing to enjoy doing it but then there's a whole other level now where you're you're recording your own information about this and, and giving some talks here and there and the blog and things. What, what led to that transition? Um, I think pretty much sheer boredom. Hmm. Um, and the fact that, um, at that point, 
I mean, um, message boards were big. Everybody was putting everything on the message boards. And it kind of just became a really stale platform to me real fast Mm -hmm. because it's um, no matter how much information you're putting there, it's going to be uh, quickly buried in the thread by like 20 guys telling you you're wrong because (laughs) they think you're wrong. Right. Yeah. And so I've always liked writing. I've always um, and it just kind of just I just one day I decided I'm going to all the information that I have, I'm going to just put it in one spot because um, one of the big complaints I've heard from a lot of people and I'd see on those is be like, well, you know, if you know this or you, this is wrong, why don't you show me the information and say why this is wrong? So it gave me a place to um, because I, I wasn't self-confident enough to uh, send in, send articles or things to like um, Jason Gatlip was doing on the trail magazine then. Yeah. Um, and he'd encouraged me. I'd sent him a couple articles or, you know, or send, you know, go to muzzleloader and send something. I mean, that, that would never happen. And, you know, because I'm like, that sounds crazy. These people are gonna think I'm nuts. <laughs> so I'm just like, well, I'm just going to do this on my own. And then, you know, whatever happens, happens, you know, I, my friends are going to make fun of me and I'll get hate mail, but you know, Hey, it's, <laughs> it's something to do. Yeah. And it's fun. I think. Yeah. And that's kind of where I, you know, took the leap and did it. And, um, it seemed to work. People seem to like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know but, I've uh, been enjoying it. It's been a, yeah. it's been a great, in a kind of a, the introductory level that I'm at on this side of things. It's been a great way to get my feet wet and start understanding some of the terminology and some of the sources, like you say, to go out there and, and then find the information and then kind of disseminate myself through it, trying to figure out where it is and, and what it was, you know, so to speak. But so, I, I mean, I'm a fan. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. And it's, you know, I mean, the hate mail has gotten a lot less over the last couple of years, which has been nice. Good. But, <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, and like, like you're doing with a lot of your stuff where you're, you're the, the basic how to's on, you know, loading, you know, how to work up a load for a muzzle loader and things are, you know, they're basic skills that I think, and what I try to put out is a lot of stuff that guys, in a way, they're too embarrassed to ask somebody to do. Yeah. Or, or, you know, because, you know, in this hobby, it's like, I know I said a lot, you get, you get around a bunch of guys and, you know, there's a lot of one-upmanship, you know, and got new guys don't want to say anything. It sounds dumb. So, you know, I'll say a lot of dumb things for them. Yeah. <laughs> put it out there. Just trying to help folks, you know, and it's like, like I said, like what you're doing is awesome because like I've like this, just I've run into so many guys like at my work who want to get into muzzleloader uh, hunting or shooting. And that's where I've been pointing them towards you is because I'm like, this is way, you know, way, way more detailed than I, than me sitting here telling you. And you can sit there with your phone while you're shooting and watch the video and, you know, do the stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's I'm flattered that you <laughs> you tell people about the the website and things, but I I think that's so important that the information is out there and accessible for people to answer those questions because I'm I'm even the same way. There are times where I'm really quiet, you know, if I'm meeting with groups of people because I'm trying to understand something that I don't know and and I'm to the point now where I'll I'll ask the stupid questions because I don't mind looking stupid but <laughs> you know that when you're getting into it it's it can be kind of nerve-wracking because 
the the people that you're around or the people that you can ask have a lot of times been doing it for you know in my case longer than I've been alive and you right. know that's a that's a hurdle to jump over for sure yeah and like I said the guys that I started off with that really helped me out it's kind of like a way for me to pass it on to other people to be like here you know um you know this is what I what I can show you this is the sources to make this easier because it's it is an expensive hobby mm-hmm. that's one thing I'm always trying to do is I try to keep people from buying the wrong gear right off the bat so they don't do that same thing that everybody you know majority of the hobby does where you go through and you buy a bunch of stuff and then really quickly find out that none of this is what I need. Yeah. So let's kind of dive into that a little bit. Your the header on your website or your blog there says that you're you're documenting the gear and clothing of a seventeen sixties market hunter operating out of Fort Pitt. What do you think captivates us about the long hunters or the market hunters? Yeah. I I was thinking about that question and it's one of those things where um, one, I think it's part of it's, it's the idea of, we all love hunting and, and the idea of, you know, when you're out there in the woods and you're by yourself and the level of freedom that you have. And I think we look at that as, um, <clears throat> these guys were doing a job, like our dream job in a way. Right. But what I guess lost in that is, and this is what I see a lot of my real world job is, um, being on the engine every day we go by, there's like. I'll pass 50, 60 guys who are sitting there taking pictures of a train. And then when I talk to them, you know, they're really thinking this is, it must be an amazing, interesting job. And, it, <laughs> and, and it's like, I'm like, no, this is terrible. You know, this, is not a life, this is not the life that you want. Um, and I think a lot of it's that with, with hunting, it's mm-hmm. the same thing where, I mean, and the guys that we're, we're looking at, um, you know, guys like the, the Casper Mansker, uh, Daniel Boone, um, Simon Gerties, like they, these guys all stood out in history. So they were hunters and they ended up forming, you know, a, doing a lot to form our country. Yeah. So it's like, we they have a, a, they're doing our dream job. And at the same time, they're going on these insane adventures and things. And it's, you know, it's still in our minds, the same thing that make us as kids like pirates and things like that. You know, it's that it's romanticized. It's, it's interesting, you know? Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, you go to a civil war reenactment, you're going to see 400 sharpshooters, you yeah. know, and like six, six regular soldiers, you know, it's like, is there, it's just a, something that we do as a species that we fixate on things that are, you know, these people had skills that we would like to improve on. So we, you know, things like that. So we try to look and act like they did. So maybe somehow that'll, you know, rub up through osmosis will, will come out in us. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, I kind of think of it as, uh, you know, cultural icons or cultural heroes, you know, before we had, you know, contemporary heroes over time, like you say that folks like Daniel Boone, they became that for us culturally. And now, you know, working a nine to five or, or working, you know, not hunting, we, the, the chances and the opportunities that we do get to go out and, and be in the woods, those are, you know, very happy times generally, I, I would, I would say across the board mm-hmm. for folks. And I think that can kind of lend or bleed into that, that thinking of, of being out hunting all the time would be great <laughs> until you're right. getting rained on and you're soaked and your, your shoes are worn out. You know, and the idea of just going for thousands of miles and not seeing a person or not, you know, not hitting a posted sign, you're think, not hitting, the, that, not hitting the edge of the state game lands. You right. know, it, it's, it's an idea in our heads. It's, it's, it's really hard to understand or even comprehend because it's something that we all 
you know, are used to. Yeah. Just, there's limitations that we just accept as a part of our daily life that these guys didn't have. So it's adds to that romance. You know, they could see what's over that next ridge. We can't go over that next ridge because the guy who owns that property doesn't let us hunt there. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. the The idea of not seeing somebody for thousands of miles on many days sounds. That's the best part of it. I mean, never mind mm-hmm. <laughs> being out in the woods. That sounds like the best part. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. I don't care what you're into. If you're interested in muzzleloading, this is the kind of magazine I think you need to check out. I've been a fan of Muzzleloader Magazine even before the sponsorship. Uh, I've always been impressed with what Jason has been able to put out with Muzzleloader Magazine, and it really means a lot for him uh, to be supporting I Love Muzzleloading and our efforts over here. Thank you, Muzzleloader Magazine, for your support. So... What should, you know, kind of jumping around here, what, what should somebody portraying the 1760s like you are have in their gear and their equipment? You, you talked about trying to guide people through not having gear that isn't right or doesn't work. You know, what are, what are three to five things that, that people should have? And, and if you have more or want to talk about it more, we can do more than five. But I didn't want to put too much pressure on you. I mean, I know like my main focus has always been the 1760s uh, Fort Pitt hunters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just been like my favorite. That's, I mean, I guess that's like, you know, my favorite brand of hunter. But I'm, what you end up looking at, I look at a lot is 18th century hunters in general, whether it's um, uh, Meshock Browning in Maryland in the 1790s, you know, 18, like 1804, 1812 era, um, doing bear hunting or it's um, the Harmons and the Long Boone and those guys do the, the Long Hunters out of Beth Abra down in there. Um, I kind of look at all of them as you know they are all doing the basic same job. So and okay. there's a lot of similarities that I see in the gear that I can document to them. And um, like the the big ones for me for for someone to get comfortable or do the things basically is you need a good kettle, uh, a good blanket a good fire fire kit and um a pocket knife and after that you know you can kind of add i you can really uh 
improvise a lot of the rest. I love um, how attainable and, you know, relatively simple that list is. Yeah. I mean, we overthink a lot of this stuff. I mean, it's, it's a culture. We are so obsessed with stuff Yes, that, you know, there's so there really isn't much that you need. And I mean, I've been working on a thing now as kind of an article on alternative to packs and like how much you see in a period where people are traveling from point A to point B and they're wrapping all their items in a handkerchief, you know, kind of like we think of the hobo pack on a stick. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of images of guys in the 18th century traveling like that. Um, it's just sticking stuff into a kettle and carrying it, you know, things we, you don't need, you know, almost like a uniform gear to go out in the woods and, you know, walk from point A to point B in an 18th century context. Mm -hmm. That's a limitation that we put on ourselves because we assume, you know, this is like a sport just like baseball or bowling or something else where, you know, you need certain pieces of the uniform to participate. And, you know, the 18th century didn't work like that. And that's one thing I try to get across to people is, I mean, those basic items that I said are really what you need to to not go to a stage uh, four of a trek real quick, you know? <laughs> and like I said, they're, they're relatively inexpensive. And once you, you nail those things down, you know, the rest of the kit kind of, it's real easy to work through for somebody, yeah. you know? Um, then you can really focus on your time, place, and, uh, you know, region, you know, kind of like what, you know, focus. Because you'll meet a lot of people who are like, well, I have to trail long hunter you know, that lives in Florida. Well, do you, you know, or do you portray like whatever the uniform of what everybody who thinks a long hunter wears? But, you and know, you live they, in Florida. <laughs> yeah. But you just happen to live in Florida. Right. You know? hmm. So it's like, a, I try to get people to focus on their area or, you know, or just even look a little bit deeper than just, you know, like the, the one term I, I, it drives me insane that like you look at catalogs or vendors of things and they've got, you know, things labeled long hunter hat or long hunter knife. Yes. You know, it's like there, that's not something that you're going to see in the 18th century, you know, right. <laughs> it's not, a, you know, it's your kind of, you're, it's you kind know, of that it, uh, cultural modification you right. know, that it's, travels it's, through time. Yeah. And it, it just becomes like almost just a brand mm -hmm. and just like, you know, just like every other name brand thing. But yeah, but those items are what I recommend people uh, get to to put a little more time and effort into getting and thinking about. Um, and if they're, you know, like a, I rec right now, the Rob Stone blankets are the, the nicest ones that I've been able to, to uh, handle. And they are, from using them in all types of weather now, um, they're awesome. You know, they really do keep you warm. They're constructed right. Um, more importantly than anything, they, they fall apart in a period manner because okay. my body, my body chemistry breaks down gear like faster than anything else. So really, yeah. Oh, they, they catch on fire. And plus I do a lot of dumb stuff. So they catch on fire <laughs> correctly. They, uh, they, they, they hold stains really well. You know, it's, it's great. <laughs> Is that authentic experience? Yes. So can people send you their gear to weather in? Is that a service yeah, I, that you offer? <laughs> you know, I, I have found that, um, you know, there are a number of museum figures out there that I've, I've broke the gear in really? before they, they put them all, oh, a lot, a lot of the, uh, <laughs> I've done that quite a few, I make the item and then friends who work different museums will buy this stuff because it's, it's already broken in. Okay. 
And um, it looks accurate that way. That's awesome. Yeah. I've actually had customers who buy tumplins off me who are excited because I'm like, well, it has blood stains from a deer on it. And that make for some reason, people get super happy about that. I'm hmm. like, okay, sure, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you could go get blood stains on it too, you know, but <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's the other part. It's like, I, you know, I get a lot of questions like, well, how do you age your gear? It's like, you, you don't, you wear it. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't need to, to drag it behind your car or do something insane or boil it in tea, just wear it, you know, just wear it. Um, the, I just, uh, made a new jacket, but my old, um, 18th century jacket, I'd wear it anytime I was modern muzzleloader hunting. I just throw it on over my hoodie because it had all my stuff already in the pockets. Okay. Yeah. You know, I kept it in the trunk of my car, take it out, go hunting and, you know, it got, you know, yeah, if I would come across somebody, I would look a little odd, but I already look weird because I'm carrying a blue flintlock smoothbore trying to shoot squirrels. So, I mean, the jacket was the least of my work. Right. That's the. So, you got to tell me about that then. If you got this blue flintlock smoothbore, you got to give me some more details. Oh, I, yeah. That's um, a lot of the uh, the trade guns. Yeah. Um, they were they were stocked in beach. And it's a really, really ugly wood to finish. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of these guns were just simply, I mean, when trade that's a trade guns weren't just made necessarily for the native trade. You know, they were the single barrel shotguns of the period. Um, and so all the parts are real, you know, just sheet brass, real cheaply made. But there's a, a description um, of Williamsburg when the, uh, Revolutionary War is breaking out where the uh, boys are carrying the uh, basically these blue blue painted um, trading guns. And so that's the description I used uh, when after this gun was made based off of the a number of the examples of like the Type G or the mm -hmm. those um, trading guns. So I painted it blue and I didn't realize that that it was I get more questions about the blue gun than I do anything else because it just <laughs> Um, there's descriptions of them being yellow, which may just be a finished beach stock. It might not be actually physically painted yellow. Right. Um, the, uh, Almost the like Bumford a gun. Yeah. The, the Bumford gun in, in Williamsburg, if you look at it closely, but if you look under it on blacklight, it really pops up. There's a vine work painted through it. Ah. And, you know, there's that famous, the death of wolf image where the natives got some paint on his gun. So it kind of became a thing where, you know, um, there's also a quote from the Treaty of Easton where the natives are talking about, like, because they really want rifles, but all we see here are these, you know, but all you give us are the, uh, these painted guns. Okay. You know, so it was there and it was done, but it's, it wasn't a, um, a lot of people want to put some kind of, um, native spiritual context or yeah. decorative thing on it where it was just simply something done because these were really cheaply made guns. And it was a, a quick, easy way to finish them. Hmm. And, you know, I love my, my blue gun is by far my, my favorite gun to shoot. Uh, you know, it's only weighs around five pounds. So it's Ooh. real easy to carry in the woods. Um, and I'm, you know, I've been able to bark squirrels with it, but then at the same, like, you know, 10 minutes later, I'll miss a squirrel at 10 feet. So, right. you know, it's kind of a but cruel mistress then. Yeah. It's, it, 
but like I say, like that, you know, you, you carry a blue gun into a state game lands, you know, someone's not going to notice the, uh, the 18th century jacket you're wearing, you know, just to, just to beat it up. Right. You know, a lot of people think it's a plastic stock or things like that. And I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's wood. Right. <laughs> is it beach then underneath or is it a, a different wood? Yes. It's, it's beach. Okay. So it's, it's full correct then. Right. Yeah. A gentleman named uh, Mike Seidelman uh, did it. He, he's a, he does, he doesn't work for Williamsburger. He does, but he does work in the gun shop down there. I think he's a volunteer. Okay. He's a um, amazing gunsmith. Um, I believe the majority of the guns I own right now, he had made because hmm. I've always been lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to pick one up. Um, but yeah, he did a copy of uh, same, a, a boy's gun version of that, that I have that for my daughter that weighs three pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, over 50 grains it, it bites you but it is such a nice little gun to carry and shoot yeah yeah so yes i, I put too much time and investment to make sure my daughter had a correct trade gun so <laughs> does she enjoy shooting it, it though she did okay speaking of which congratulations well thank you um, yes this is this will definitely uh you know definitely change your life <laughs> yeah I, uh, <laughs> i'll admit i'm uh, i'm a little sleep deprived so i'm <laughs> i'm gonna i'm afraid i'm gonna listen back to the recording and uh be like wow ethan you really bungled that one but <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i'm i'm stoked uh i'm cutting out a a little toy gun toy muzzleloader for now based on one <laughs> my dad made for me and nice uh gonna talk to chambers about one of their little fellas kits here at some point for her and Try to go through that route. Yeah, we're we're very excited. Thank you. Oh, no problem. Yeah, my especially with girls, it makes it all different. Like my my middle daughter, of course, she had to be left-handed, so now I have to get an entirely new smoothbore built for her. Okay. You know, and then I I just I'm scared to death of that the youngest one might not even like muzzleloaders, and I just don't even want to think about that. Right. <laughs> That's kind of where I'm at right now. Is I have a a little bit of the t more time right now to to put something together for her but i'm nervous about the right or left handedness because there's left hands in in my family and i it would just be my luck that i'd build something and it'd be the wrong hand yeah it's a, my my daughter's ambidextrous but she's um left eye dominant okay so it's one of those it's it, that was an eye-opening situation I, I had to have my my sister-in-law who shoots a lot um she ended up doing a lot better job with her because i i went old school and i it wasn't the best parenting moments, whereas my training, my grandfather and dad yelling, you're using the wrong eye. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they just kind of pop back in, you know, through yes. time a little bit. <laughs> We've all been there, I think. So as somebody who takes the research and portrayal of this market hunter uh, seriously, especially down to the, the location that you're, you know, around or, or you know, trying to portray here. We've, I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but how well do you think market hunters are represented in the community and media in general? And I, and I don't bring this up at all to kick the hornet's nest. Uh, I see and, and hear these discussions a lot, both online and at events. And I'm just kind of curious as to, to what your take on it is and, uh, and where you think it can go. Um, the, there's a, the same core group of guys that I I've seen who I think have been doing an amazing job at doing this stuff have been, are still the ones doing it. Um, it's kind of, like I said, it, I don't want to kick the, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be reformed and not, not stir up things right now either. And it's like, um, 
one, it, it's an over, way oversaturated portrayal in that I think a lot of times people don't. I have a gun. I have a waistcoat. I'm a market. You know, I'm a long hunter. Mm-hmm. Where there's, you know, whenever I'm going and doing public demonstrations or talking things, I got, I, you know, I've got a lot of the gear that these guys talk about carrying from, um, you know, hand vices and hand bellows, um, screw plates, uh, powder gourds. You know, like, like there's a lot more to it than just simply, you know, I go shoot deer, and. Uh, as which chances to do that um public interaction are few and far between in a lot of places mm-hmm. yeah because so like i said my thing was was like is i'm seeing the hobby like i've seen a lot of folks um kind of fine-tune their impressions they're kind of trying to either you know to be a 1770s long hunter or you know they're you're at a, just a settler who's hunting in Kentucky kind of thing. I've seen that at the, the few sites I've, or events I've been going to. because I've kind of been in a self-imposed, um, just going to the woods and hunting with a few friends for the past couple of years, just because it, it really did, wasn't getting anything out of reenactments anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I know um, that feeling. Yeah. But overall, and from talking to people and the people I do see, I think stuff is improving on, on one hand, but there's still so much misinformation that gets that's tossed around to the public on, and, and I see online just on a regular basis that, you know, um, it, it's irritating because it's, and a lot of it's stuff that's just been perpetuated for decades. Yeah. Uh, like the idea, like the idea of, I mean, you know, these guys were all on their own hook. They did everything on their own, made all their own stuff. And it's kind of like, all right, so, they're hunters and they're hunting for money and people are like, well, yeah, it's like, so what are they doing with that money? You know, exactly, and they, yeah. look at, they look at you like you're from Mars and it's like, you know, and you know, it's like, what are they, are they just buying more files to turn into giant knives because, you know, <laughs> they want to, you know, it's like, there's no, you're, yeah. you're buying the goods and you're buying the things. And, um, you know, a lot of these hunters, uh, they were, like the, the Fort Pitt, the market hunters, you know, they were hunting for a company. Um, you know, they, and the company was basically using things like company script almost in a way, you know, like you, here's your paycheck, but I'm going to take out this much because of the rifle you bought. I'm taking out this much because you gave away that ax that you were using mm. where the, the guys that were coming out of Beth Abra, um, you know, the Harmons and those folks, you know, they were buying durable goods. You know, the same things that you would find somebody, a, a farmer um, at McCorkle's store buying or, or different different places of Virginia. You know, they're buying Osnabergs, the um, the half fix, the, they're buying horn butt. They're buying things who have regular clothes made. They're doing something with the, with the hides that they're turning in. They're not, you know, sitting in the woods, you know, hacking apart through with a giant knife. And then sitting there using that knife to punch giant holes into a an ugly hide, you turn into a, a pouch. You yeah, know? It's things like it's things like that still drive me insane because it's like they're still living in the 18th century world. They're not in a little bubble, right? You know, it's um, it's you know, all of a sudden you don't cross you know the Cumberland Gap and it's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, 18th century style. <laughs> you know, I would watch that movie though. In a heartbeat. I would too. I totally would watch it. That's 
especially if Bruce Campbell and Nicolas Cage starred in it. That, oh, that movie, okay. We're, we got to call win. Hollywood. Yes, that movie would win an Oscar for the best movie ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I ask that, you know, just to further clarify that, you know, not trying to knock anybody. As long as, long as you're out there having fun and, and enjoying your muzzleloader, I'm all for it. I've been going through this past winter trying to to build and assemble uh, clothing and, and research so that I can start talking about the historical side of this and start pointing people towards folks like you, really, who know a lot more than I do uh, in an appropriate manner. And for for me growing up, I attending events with my parents, we always, uh, you know, kind of traditional craftspeople with, with spinning and, and traditional woodworking tools and things. But you know, as a teenager, I was, you know, long hunters are always at events carrying cool guns and cool knives and they always look dirty. And, you know, so kind of going through that myself and now I come out now as kind of a young adult and, and understanding that history more of the industries and the economy that was present even here in the United States fairly early on. You know, it's kind of changed how I'm seeing all of that and, and then how I want to try to be able to talk about it and, and reference things appropriately so that if you want to go out and, and still portray a long hunter, I don't have any problem with that. But, um, I still, you know, I, I really appreciate you, you answering that and I hope you don't get increased hate mail because of it. Oh no, no. Well, like my point for day one is it's been, it's been really odd that, um, you know, when we hunt and a lot of, there's a lot of writers and folks when they point out things they they want to use modern like items as like a context to put things in and for folks like i'm sure in your area it was the same you know now you see more guys with special hunting clothes you know what i mean mm -hmm. like you, you <laughs> yes growing growing up we you know it was they really you really didn't have the special hunting outfit you wore the same clothes that you wore to work that you wear hunting. Yeah. You know, and the 18th century, if you look at the, the purchases and the, the items that these guys are wear that are buying that are hunters, they match up to the same thing that you would see a dock worker buying or a carpenter buying, you know, it's the same work clothes of the period. It's not a, you know, you don't get to Carlisle, you know, you don't go into Beth Abra and, you know, get rid of all your clothes and be like, all right, outfit me. Right. You know, like there's, there's no long hunter section of bait and warden Morgan, you know, it's <laughs> the, the, the leggings and the blanket coats the hunters are buying are the same thing that the company is giving to the, the slaves. They're um, sending down the Mississippi. It's the same clothes that the natives coming in are buying. Right. It's that's the same clothes. Was, yeah. That's what was being yeah. made at the time. Right. And it was the common working class clothes, you know, um, and that's always been the hardest thing to get through to people is that, yeah, you know, the frontier part of that comes in whenever gear breaks down, gear needs replaced gear, you know, or you're, you know, that's, you know, leggings make sense. You know, moccasins make sense when your shoes wear out or you're doing certain things. You know, it's like yeah. you, you add, I'm trying to get guys to like, you know, make a kit. When something breaks down, add something, you know, if you're, if you get holes in your trousers, make a pair of leggings, get a breech clout. That's how you could replace that, you know, but just starting from, I now want to look like Skua Mad Max version. It's just going to be so 
it's, it's going to look odd and it's going to look out of place. Mm-hmm. And it's, and one of the things like so, some of my friends who I, who would do stuff with, who I think look the most natural in their gear and uh, like Jesse Maines, uh, for example, he, when he wears his stuff, he's, his gear doesn't look like a costume. It looks like his clothes. It looks natural in it. Where, you know, if you see somebody and their, their moccasins are shifting back and forth and they're having a hard time even just walking across the parking lot, it shows that they don't really, hold on a second, I get my dog out of the room here. No, you're okay. <laughs> um, it shows that, you know, they really don't get out and use the stuff. You know, they don't, if stuff doesn't fit them naturally it's not going to in, in a reenactment it's not going to fit you naturally in the woods it's you know that's how you get blisters that's how you know you get chafing all the things that you know the problems that you don't want to have that point you towards that stage four of being miserable in the woods rather selfishly here i'm at that stage of it's a costume right now right and I, i'm okay with that and i'm, I'm and i with the website and things and trying to talk with you know knowledgeable people here i'm trying to show that progression a little bit on how you can get your feet wet start to understand this stuff and then go through and and do it in a in an authentic manner so that you don't have that costume feeling like uh, right kalamazoo this year was one of the first events that i was able to wear some of the stuff that i've been making and and putting together and the pictures i see of it i think wow I'm, i've really got a long ways to go <laughs> and it doesn't feel natural on you yeah you know and that's why like to a lot of guys it's like when you make gear you know like for example moccasins this sounds crazy but you make a pair of moccasins next time you cut the grass wear your moccasins mm-hmm. you know wear them out do something like that but they're going to get wet they're going to they're dry out you're going to see where they twist things like that you know, don't be scared to put your gear on and just go, you know, to a state park or land that you hunt on and hang out for a day. Like not everything needs to be a, you know, a week long trek in the woods to get a feel for it. You know, just an afternoon walking around in the stuff, you know, one, you could kind of feel, you know, what you need to adjust, what you don't need to adjust. And, you know, plus more importantly, you're going to get those stains and wear and things that, um, you know, make it look less like a costume. Yeah. And just the one thing I'm big on is, you know, the the way when I shoot, it's like, I'm always using the same rig that I would use when I'm hunting, you know, in my gear. That way I know exactly where everything's at, you know, so it becomes more muscle memory when you're reloading than it does anything else. Okay. Yeah. You know, whenever I have, I'm team, powder horns and a million shot bags and i still use the same two you know because anytime i change one of those things next time i go shooting i just feel like a an alien right the other ones look really cool hanging on a wall in my house night now but that's about all they do right (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's kind of the appreciating the art side of it and uh and then the the practical use side of it i I like to buy the artwork and then try to destroy it in a period way that's, (laughs) that's fun Double jeopardy here. I sent you a couple pictures of the equipment that I have, and I'll admit it's just kind of everything that I had just kind of thrown out on the ground. Right. Um, I'm open to any critique that you might have, and, and for the listeners, I'll put pictures of this in the on the website in the show notes so that you can see my my real basic kindergarten level gear here. <laughs> and, and a, One, I was pumped that you had a buck saw. I thought that was awesome. Oh, thank that's you. What, that, uh, they're 
super handy. Um, and you know, just, uh, just having something like that when you're out with it's a pain to carry on your, on your, by yourself and with your group of guys and you're going to do something like build a camp or something. They, they are amazing to have. Um, you know, I, I'm not honestly not a fan of copper canteens. Um, but that's just the lack of the originals that are out there. Okay. But canteens in general, um, it's, it's an item you need in this day and age. You know, it's we, you can't go drinking out of any stream or things like that. So, like, because the more I dig into the water containers, the the more I, I think, you know, things like just carrying a glass bottle and things like that are common. Okay. Because, um, like, the, for example, Fort Pitt, I can find natives buying canteens, like tin canteens, but I have not found a hunter buying one yet. Ah, okay. But I'm also seeing a lot of, bottles of things going down with, with the hunters, you know, I mean, glass bottles in the 18th century are, you know, super, super common everywhere. You know, archaeological sites are covered with them for a reason. Do you think that but, they were considered kind of disposable at the time? To a point, And it also disposable, reusable. You okay. know what I mean? It's, yeah. You see, you see it a lot. Like, um, there's a really sweet image of, um, a, a Creek native carrying a, traveling to a camp and it's in his hand he's holding a a mallet bottle you know which to our minds where everybody traveling in the woods needs to be outfitted like they're a member of seal team six (laughs) we don't think about just traveling from point a to point b you know with items um you know and i I try to point folks towards if it's watch any documentary on south american natives or um, like the pygmies in africa a group of them traveling you're going to see gear carried a lot of the same ways you'll see 19th century images of natives and it's you know it's just way that it's an easy way for you to carry something right you know there's plenty of accounts where you know uh like Trebo's narrative's perfect for it there's like a group of guys walking one way down a trail there's a group of natives walking the other way down the trail and they literally walk into each other everyone panics and runs you know, hmm. not at, not every day was Lewis Wetzel out there right. you know, st- stalking the woods. You know, a lot more time than not, you're just going from point A to point B. And you and your friends are telling each other terrible jokes. And, you know, a lot, a lot of these narratives, they end up walking. You know, that's why we knew a lot of their names is because they weren't paying attention and they just walked into a war party. Hmm. But, yeah, but like I said, canteen things guys need. i just not a fan of it. I prefer tin ones. Or, like I said, glass bottles. Um, you know, as far as the other stuff goes, I, I was really pumped to see that you were wearing a jacket. Um, that's one item that I noticed reenactors for some reason are all scared of sleeves. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's because of most of our normal jobs. None of A lot of people don't wear suit jackets anymore. It's mm-hmm. not a common thing. Where, you know, in the 18th century, you really weren't considered properly dressed. Even on the frontier... You know, a hunting shirt is basically a frontier jacket. You know, you're covering up your 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 shirt. Um, you know, you see a lot of these hunters when they're buying things, they're buying jackets. You okay. know, it's they're handy to have and they have pockets. And yeah, pockets are great. Have, <laughs> yeah, pockets are amazing. I know, don't understand why people don't like pockets. Yeah. I wonder, too, if that has anything to do with the, the season in which most of us are out using gear, you know, events are kind of summer, fall, 
you know, or, and right. if you're out in the summer, you don't necessarily, you're worried about, you know, maybe overheating or something. I don't know, but yeah, which is funny. I mean, because up till say the fifties, you know, linen jackets were something that guys wore in the summer because they're cool. Yeah. You know, at the 18th century is the same thing. It just, there was some point, I think, but you know, it's probably something to do with the way our country industrialized or things that guys quit wearing suit jackets and things. So that kind of came something that you, you don't wear hmm. and you know, it's, it's not normal. It doesn't, it doesn't feel natural for people. Right. Whereas like, like sleeveless waistcoats almost become like the, the standard outerwear for your average reenactor. Yes. Is it, did you make your rifle? That's a, that's a Kibler kit. So that's the Kibler okay. Southern mountain rifle. Uh, but the, the patch box and the toe plate, uh, my father helped me with. Nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, really, and I know this is going to be like a free advertisement for Kibler for both of us, but I'm really looking to get in both the, uh, the Southern rifle and, and one of his kits, just because I've heard so much good stuff and I want to get them before he realizes it, before he goes crazy and quits making everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today they just announced pre-orders, uh, for the woods runner, which is a little bit earlier than, than the colonial. I think it might be a little more right up your alley. It's a lighter gun. I have to take a look at that because, um, yeah, because I'd, I'd heard that was going to happen. I was really looking forward to a smoothbore, but then, like, I went out and bought a smoothbore, right? yet another smoothbore <laughs> that I did. You can never have too many 62 caliber smoothbores in your house. You know, you got the molds already to cast the balls. You might as well have another rifle for it, you know, or another yes. musket. <laughs> I I got I got it specifically for the reason it, it doesn't doesn't have a rear sight where the blue the Type Gs and a lot of those guns have rear sights. Okay, and I wanted to sh- shoot it in matches. And then the day I got it, I found out that the match that I shoot at allows rear sights. Oh. And I'm like, I'm like, I seriously just bought a gun for no reason. You just handicapped yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, the, the um, I noticed you, you don't have a, like, I was looking at this stuff. You didn't really have a pack yet. Um, one thing I recommend for guys, this real simple pack is a, a mark. Well, I hate using the term market wallet it doesn't pop up in the period it kind of become a reenactorism but a, a wallet um just the that linen almost like a pillowcase with a with a slit in the middle mm-hmm. those things are awesome for for one for just carrying gear and two for guys starting out um because it's like it you know it's like i just bought linen today at joanne fabrics and it's like um, 12 bucks a yard so for 12 dollars and some thread you can have an 18th century pack that's, you know, documentable to the medieval times. Right. I've got uh, some linen laid out, actually, to, to try my hand at making a couple of those. So that's on my list. Yeah, it's one of those, I recommend um, Burnley and Trowbridge do an amazing video on um, sewing wallets. And they also do a lot of videos for hand sewing in general. Okay. That's what I've been pointing guys towards. You know, you just you get like the basic old pack pattern which is everywhere on the internet i think i have a copy of it on my on the on my blog yep practice hand sewing with that stuff and then you it's you get if you do a knapsack it's not a giant jump then to start doing trousers or something else you know there's a little bit more stitch different stitches involved here and there but it's we're at a point now as, as a hobby where there is so much ready available information out there that it's it's easy for someone to do an inexpensive, inexpensive, really authentic kit, real easy. That's what I'm really excited about is just the accessibility of information now and the the ease of access to it. If you're interested in it, you can try your hand at this stuff and and really get into it. 
Yeah, and I, I look at my bookshelf. And I spent a lot of money on books that I can get on free on Google Books right now. Yeah, it kind of kind of hurts. <laughs> but, um, but let's say I've got your I'm trying to think what other images are on there. Like you, um, shooting bag looked awesome. Powderhorn looked awesome. We'll work on your moccasins. Thank you. You know, <laughs> we'll get together and work on your moccasins. I admit, I need I need to wear them more. But like I said, but but here's the here's the part, and I then I sound like I'm being elitist. Or something for start for someone who wants to start out everything that you have to go to a a black powder shoot or a rendezvous or, or even a lot of local events is a to start out i would not discourage someone from doing it you know that's the thing where a lot of time it's if you get get someone in old clothes and get to an event they automatically get hooked and i'd rather see somebody show up with a with a you know a so-so kid willing to learn mm-hmm. than you know because it's it you're never going to feel like you're done Right. I mean, I, I'm still constantly making stuff and fixing things and trying to find stuff. And I've been doing this for 30 years. And I am so far from being done <laughs> or even being close to what I think would be ex- acceptable in my brain. Right. So, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm discouraging people from, from trying this stuff because it's like whatever you get, get out in the woods to use. You know, I mean, I tell guys, you know, squirrels and deer don't care what you're wearing when you're shooting at them. You know, how, however ridiculous it looks to you at an event, you know, just get out and do shoot, get out with your muzzleloader and go hunting and do this stuff. That's what it's all about, really. That's that's the most yeah. important part. I mean, you can you can go through the gear hunt of, of trying to find the next thing all the time. But, um, you know, as long as you're going out and having fun, that's that's what it's about. I mean, a lot of this is just busy work for the rest of us, you know, in between hunting seasons. Right. You know? so, <laughs> yeah. It's something to keep us from driving our wives and children and families crazy, um, you know, <laughs> staring at the woods, waiting for the leaves to change. Well, I think the the last question I have, and I think it's kind of a, a good closer for us so you can get on with your day here. Uh, what are some of your recommended resources for somebody to look at, at getting in deeper into research and portrayal? Um, a, a good starter book, and it's one that I, I still end up going back to, um, Frontier Rifleman by Richard LaCrosse. Um, he does a good job of, it's like a sketch, it's a sketchbook and it's got a lot of the gear in there, but it also shows where the gear is at. It's located. And he goes through and breaks things down by, um, quotes and where the, you know, and who the quotes are by on things like clothing, um, marksmanship and things. And that was one that I started off with as a kid. And it still is a great one just for using it as a, um, a bibliography okay. and, and track it, going a little bit further. There's a, a book by a Donald Reddick called observations on the Backcountry. real thin little book. Um, I believe smoke and fire still sells it. And it's, you know, uh, he went through and did chapters, um, on clothing and things. And once again, you can then, you know, if you find a quote that you like, you know, there's the bibliography to go find the, the, the book to track it down. Because he has some good quotes on hunting shirts, on food, on types of travel, um, entertainment, you know, things like that that uh, like that are really interesting to read. Hmm. Um, for a fun read that's full of information, I recommend to people um, Westward to Kentucky, uh, Daniel Trebo's narrative. Uh, Trebo traveled down in the 1770s, and his narrative is just a hoot. <laughs> because it is he's constantly you know getting into to dumb situations or there's things you know um there's a point where 
uh, one of his friends is trying to kill a buffalo with the back of a tomahawk by hitting it in the head, and it doesn't work out quite the way they expect. <laughs> um, he talks about going back. They're getting chased out of a rock house by natives. He ends up running back to grab his shoes because they have silver buckles. Things, just all the the worst possible ideas to show you that not everybody in the 18th century backcountry um, was, you know, Chuck Norris. Like this is the it, it, the book to get. That sounds awesome. And it's, and it's funny because it's the way it everything is. They didn't change the spelling in a lot of it. Okay. So it's it's still pretty phonetically, you know how. So you can almost picture hear him speaking. You know my the became the motto of Augusta County was there's a quote where they're going out after um, Tarleton skies and one of the the people that sees them as they're leaving tells them to uh, don't get catched, you know, <laughs> and that's been our, our motto since then is, you know, you don't get catched. I love you that. Go out. But yeah, Turbo is one that not a lot of people have read. Um, that's pretty easy to find. Um, I guess just, I try to link put, uh, Dale Payne's books, Dale, uh, Frontier Memories. Um, there's, there's this whole series of them. And they're excerpts from the uh, the Draper and Shane interviews. Um, these were guys who went around and interviewed all the survivors, basically. Did like oral histories with the people who had lived through settling Kentucky, settling Ohio, different places. So it's ah. what they remember, um, full of neat little details. And once again, just stories that make it come, come to life on a way that you don't get from reading a textbook or a secondary source. You know, right. it really gives it that personality. Uh, Skua, of course, I mean, James Smith's narrative is still my favorite. I, I, I could go on this for hours. So <laughs> um, or, like I said, my, I try to put as many narratives as I can or, or for sources for folks on the blog whenever I still put things on the blog. A lot of oddball ones that I've just put on there that aren't the standard, you know, like I said, Smythe, Doddridge, right. you know, that people keep going back to all the time. I really appreciate the the citations of those sources that you that you've put in the blog. I've they've really let me go down a rabbit hole. I think uh, it's been really enjoyable. I was up this morning with my daughter, and I call it the three a.m. club, where we we get up and <laughs> sit so my wife can sleep some. And I was going through some of that uh, in, in preparation for the talk, and and then some of my my research here. And it's just been it's been really great. If anybody out there listening hasn't checked out. Uh, Buffalo Trace 1765. You really need to. It's it's a great resource. And I'm going to be um, putting a lot more stuff on there now since I'm I'm trying to, since I've been able to uh, start putting some stuff in Mausoloader, I talked to Jason about kind of what he wants. So I'm going to kind of go back and forth for putting some uh, more detailed how-to information, I guess, on the blog. Things that are, things like also involve artwork or original items that I can't get the clearance to publish in a magazine. Okay. I can use free use on the, on the, uh, the blog. Oh, so okay. I'm, so I'm here the next week or two. I'm going to start doing a lot regular updates on that again. Awesome. That, uh, that's the kind of stuff that trips my trigger, man. Like I said, I just hope people were getting some use out of it. Um, and you know, that I, I'm trying to not go down so many crazy esoteric rabbit holes anymore. <laughs> but you know it's it's tough some days it's fun too you know you, you, you got to have a little dose of that i think well cool man i, I really appreciate you you coming on and, and talking with me i i i really enjoyed it and if if nobody else does i don't really care because i did so <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I had fun too, man. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I really like what you're doing. It's really yeah. promoting the hobby and as a sport in general, because there's so many sides to it that it's just, you know, there's so much stuff to get involved with with black powder shooting. Yeah. There's something for everybody is what I try to tell people, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you don't want to sit in, in the woods and get rained on, you can go do something else and still be enjoying muzzleloading. I don't know what else you would do, though. That is you know, the best part of it. That's, that's kind of where I'm leaning right now. Of course, the weather is nicer. So December, I'm more kind of, you know, working in the shop, kind of muzzleloading mood. But Oh, that's the best time. Pennsylvania, yeah. late mu- muzzleloader season. You don't come across another human being in the woods. And if you do and you're just... You know, like an 18th century hunter, they generally don't talk to you. They just go the other direction. So <laughs> they turn right easier. around. <laughs> Steering clear of that guy. I'd like to thank Nathan again for coming onto the show to talk with me. I really learned a lot and I hope that you did as well. If you like the sort of things that Nathan's talking about here, check out his blog. I'll have a link in the description below as well as the blog post at ilovemuzzleloading.com. Along with that, I have a pretty comprehensive list here of the narratives and the materials that Nathan talked about referencing in his conversation here so that you can look them up on your own and start kind of diving into this primary source information. Even if you're not super interested in doing a, you know, 100% accurate historic portrayal or historic demonstration or hike or whatever, this is the kind of stuff that I really find entertaining and informative. And it's the kind of thing that I'm trying to replace it's just some of the modern fluff. Like when I when I say modern fluff, just meaning like scrolling through my smartphone in the evenings. I'm trying to replace that time with some of this just casual research and reading to understand some of the history of the equipment that we use in muzzleloading today, as well as the people that were using it and what life was like. Um, this kind of stuff I think is important for us to know and to carry on. And I don't I don't know if it's intentional or not, but Nathan sharing this information I think really brings it back up to light, you know, where it could just be lost in, you know, in a library somewhere. Uh, the the research that he and many others like him are doing, although casually, does a great service, I think, to the community and the sport and really culturally, not to make it too super important, but it's the kind of thing that I really get excited about because we're able to find this stuff and, and really read it. This is the kind of stuff that's real history. These these accounts and things haven't really been doctored to our understanding over time. And uh, it's just really neat to go back through and read this stuff. So please check some of that stuff out. You can uh, probably find some of it at your local library or like he talked about, get it on your interlibrary loan and, uh, and start sharing some of this history yourself. Apart from that, I have a couple things. If you were one of the folks looking for an I Love Muzzleloading hat, those are available. I had a small batch made at a local embroidery shop uh, here in the next town over from from where I'm at. So those are available at ilovemuzzleloading.com. Also, I'm looking for some feedback about the show. I get some compliments and things here and there at events, but we're coming up on a year of, of doing the show and I'm, I'm looking for some feedback from you. If you like it or don't like it, uh, I've got some pretty thick skin here. I can take your, your critique and I'd love to hear about how we can make the show better uh, for the next coming year. You can shoot me an email at ilovemuzzleloading at gmail.com. Shoot me a message on one of the social platforms that we're on, or you can leave a review on the podcast platform that you listen to 
into. I will say that the reviews uh, help us reach more muzzleloading enthusiasts. Uh, so if you'd like to do that as well as leave some feedback, you, know, you can do that there. That helps us out quite a bit. Um, but really just looking for just for what you think uh, on, on what we can do and, and where we should be taking the show. That's all I have for you this week. Uh, lots of good episodes coming for the rest of the summer here. It's It's been great. Uh, had a lot of good reception here from our guests. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you enjoy the other ones coming later this year. I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.